Hey friends, thank you so much for joining us on the Abbey Podcast. We are working to help you notice and nurture the work of God in your life, in the life of others, and in the world around you. One small thought we'd ask you to keep in mind is that our teachings, our conversations, and the stories that we tell are primarily meant for our local faith community in Columbus, Ohio. We're happy to share this with you as a gift, and we hope that it could serve you in some way. Thank you so much for being here. great to be here together on this very cold and blistery afternoon. Um, if you are new with us or you haven't been with us in a while, uh, this is one of our teaching nights. And what that means is that I'm going to do some teaching. And um, if you've been with us for a while, one of the things that I have learned about myself as I think about teaching is that primarily I'm trying to help you orient yourself to the story of God. And oftentimes what that means is that we're going to get into the weeds a little bit. We're going to dive really deep into the gospel, um, which is found in Genesis. And um, just love that you're here. And if you are new, I'd love to have an opportunity to, to meet you and would be happy if you could linger a little bit and I could have an opportunity to do that. Um, would you pray with me? I'd love just to pray one more time just to settle our hearts and minds. God, I thank you for this community. I thank you for what this has become. I thank you for what you're doing among us. And I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would come now, that you would continue to soften and massage our hearts towards you. Lord, whatever distractions in our life exist out part, uh, outside of this room, God, I just pray that you would allow us to be present to those in a way that sets them aside. God, would you speak to us through your word and through our lives that we share with one another? In Christ's name, amen. So I'm going to start with a brief story. Um, about three years ago, artist Kristen Visbell placed a commissioned sculpture in front of the New York Stock Exchange in the financial district of Manhattan. The bronze sculpture depicted a 50-inch girl, hands on her hips, her chin slightly tilted as she faced down another bronze sculpture that has become the sort of icon of financial wealth and prosperity. The commissioned piece was of a bronze girl. She stood about 50 inches high, and she sort of boldly was staring down a bronze bowl. How many of you remember this happening in the news? It was quite the ordeal. The little girl sculpture was entitled Fearless Girl, and the girl stood across from a 7,000-pound charging bowl placed by Sicilian artist Arturo de Modica. De Modica originally placed his charging bowl statue outside the New York Stock Exchange illegally, in an act of guerrilla art. So here's what this Sicilian artist did. He spent two years building a 2,000, no, 7,000 pound bronze statue of a bull, and in the dark and cover of night, he loaded it with a lot of help on the back of a truck, and he pulled up to the New York Stock Exchange, and he dumped it on the sidewalk in front of the greatest power of the financial markets of our day. The bull is a symbol of aggressive financial optimism and prosperity. Uh, The bull was later confiscated at a later time and impounded because you can't just drop a 7,000-pound statue on the sidewalk in New York City and expect to get away with it. So what happened is that the police confiscated the statue, and there was so much public outcry that the Department of, of Rec decided to go ahead and install the statue as a piece of art just two blocks south of the New York Stock Exchange, where it has sat for the past 30 years. How many of you have seen this bull in New York City or seen a picture of it? Okay, so if you think about the markets, if you follow the Stock Exchange, you know that a bull market 
means that everyone is making lots of money. And a bear market means that everyone is losing lots of money. These are symbols, okay? So for 30 years, this 7,000-pound bronze statue has set two blocks south of the New York Stock Exchange. And then all of a sudden, this 50-inch little girl shows up to stare down that bull. The fearless girl statue stood there for just 18 months because Arturo de Modico um, complained that the fearless girl statue exploited his work for commercial purposes and altered the perception of his work. And here's the thing, it did. It did exploit for commercial purchases because the little girl statue was a commissioned piece by a hedge fund. It was highlighting uh, businesses and um, financial products that, that highlighted women. Okay, so there's this huge battle that's emerging with two statues in New York City. Um, it did, in fact, change the way people perceive the charging bull. Uh, Demodico said that the statue corrupted charging bull's artistic integrity by distorting the intent of his statue from a symbol of prosperity and strength into a villain. Mayor de Blasio support, uh, supported keeping the statue, tweeting that men who don't like women taking up space are exactly why we need the feelers girl. This story is about symbol. And it's about the power of symbol that is found in things like statues and artifacts and buildings and all kinds of things. And I, wanna, I want you to hang on to this story because part of what I want to talk about is the fact that our lives are embedded with all sorts of symbols. Symbols like the American flag and the Confederate flag. Symbols like a donkey and an elephant. Symbols that are found in buildings and in statues. All around us, our life is sort of embedded with these symbols. And these symbols, they carry meaning and they carry intention and they carry story. And oftentimes, we can get really caught up in the symbols that the world around us is telling us that the world is about. Does this make sense? And it takes a moment like two statues in New York City for us to recognize that people are really attached to their symbols and to their stories. And so I want you to hold on to this, and we're going to revisit it in a while. I'm going to continue in a series that we started about four months ago, uh, we decided that we would spend the entire year talking about really one question, which is this, what is the good news? The good news is what we mean when we talk about the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And so we've been spending some time um, thinking about how do we articulate what it is when we, when we say good news, what is it that we mean? And here's sort of like some of the things that we've covered. So I want to catch you up to speed since we're now midway through January, and the last time that I spoke was mid-December, okay? Um, a couple of things that we've covered is that over and over again, that God's disposition towards us humans is that he is looking for us and seeking us out and trying to bring us back into relationship with him. One of the other things that we talked about is that, is that sometimes we're lost even when we don't realize it. And part of the work of God in our lives is to help us see that there are ways that we live our lives and make choices that lead us down a path of destruction. And while I don't believe that every single path leads to life in God, I actually believe that Jesus is walking every single path that people are on, tapping them on the shoulder, and inviting them back into life and relationship with him. This is some of the stuff that we've been looking at over the course of the past few months. Our main message, the main message as I see it as the good news, is this, that God loves you, that God is for you, that God is looking for you, and that God wants you and I to experience life and to come into relationship with him. And some of what we bumped up against is that the story of scripture is actually quite complex, isn't it? Um, it's a story that is written in multiple languages over centuries of time. And it's a really complex story. And every once in a while, we have to sort of step back and get underneath what's actually happened in order to understand what's, what's going on there. 
One of the ways that uh, we understand the story, um, because it spans so much time and because we need some help sort of getting some key points along the path, is that there's this overarching narrative structure to the story of Scripture. And we're sort of in the midst of that overarching narrative structure. And the overarching structure is this, creation, fall, redemption or reconciliation, and consummation. So this is the overarching story of the Scriptures. And we spent some time talking about the creation chapter where what we recognize is that it's been good news from the very beginning. That from the very beginning, the story that we read in Genesis, this mythic tale of an Adam and Eve that get created out of the chaos of the world, is a counter-narrative to the story that most people would have been living in. And the story that most people would have been living in in the time was a story that described an ancient god Marduk who created out of a dead body of Tiamat. This is found in the epic of, of uh, or the, the Enuma Elish. And out of this counter-narrative story, what we have in the book of Genesis is a story about how you and I are created to be just like God. That God did not create us to be slaves of the gods, that we are not put into the world to serve the gods with our slave labor, but rather... God has put us in the world as his representatives in the world and that we do not work for him, that God provides for us. That's the good news of the story of creation found in Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. And so we are on this path of of creation, fall, redemption, and consummation. And today, I want to launch us into a two-part little mini-series on the fall, which means I'm going to need to rip the band-aid off really quickly for you and to tell you that we're going to talk this afternoon about sin. And listen, part of my desire and my heart in talking about sin is that I think it's a topic that so many of us have become super afraid to talk about because it's sort of a triggering thing for lots of people. Lots of people grew up in an environment where the focus of life with God and the focus of their faith was rooted in this sort of narrative about sin, that they were filthy, that they were like a rag, that they were like dust of the earth. And oftentimes when we talk about sin, we sort of get uncomfortable. And there's two really main um, narratives uh, in the scriptures when we think about sin. There's two main symbols, and the first of which many of us are really familiar with, and it's the symbol of forbidden fruit plucked from a forbidden tree by two naked people who were unashamed. How many have heard a story about that? Okay. This is a story that we're all really familiar with, that Adam and Eve in in Genesis chapter 3 we're told uh, that there is lots and lots of trees to eat from and that you can eat from every single tree except for this one tree. And it's a story, this mythic story, that is including all of us in some way. And it's a story about how Adam and Eve chose the one piece of fruit that they were not supposed to choose. Um... But it's a story about all of us because it's just true that we want things that we can't have. Um, How many of you have ever wanted something you can't have? Anybody? Okay. Others of you just have tired arms. It's okay. Sometimes we want things before the proper time for them. Anybody ever experience impatience? Okay. Sometimes we pray... We fall prey, double hand there for Andrew, thanks. Sometimes we fall prey to temptations to take things that are not ours. And and oftentimes we fall into a temptation where we end up blaming other people for our own faults and then we live in the shame of that experience. But listen, um, we don't need a story about an ancient serpent whispering into a woman's ear to learn that there is something amiss about the way we think 
in the way we love, in the way that we desire. All we have to do, we can learn all of this by opening the newspaper, or watching a historic film, or simply waking up and confronting the reality that someone else is in the bathroom and they've been there for too long. Okay? Like, we know that there are things about the way that we operate. You can tell I live in a big family. Lots of girls, right? Actually, they're pretty good. They're pretty quick. We can tell simply by looking at our own lives that there's something off. And so we don't need a story about Adam and Eve, but we do have a story that sort of crystallizes what is true about all of us, and this becomes and has become one of the symbols that we think about when we think about sin. And so we live lives with shame and impatience and ill-paced anger and selfishness and unkind words spoken in heated moments, and all of these are what the Scripture calls sin. And these things lead us to destructive patterns in our life. So here's the thing. If you were to find a destructive pattern in your life, Uh, generally that would lead back to a set of behaviors that you are participating in. And that's what the Bible calls sin. And I want to just say to you is that there's a way of thinking about those things in your life that isn't all wrapped up in shame. Okay, and I want to talk a little bit more about that because I think the thing that's happening in a lot of people is that we're waking up to the detriment and the, the sort of, um, what's the word I want to use here? Shame is really bad. It's really damaging to us. And I don't know about you, but a lot of us were brought up in an environment, in a culture where shame was sort of the thing that lived over top of you that helped you get good things done. And i got to tell you, I don't think that, that there is any part of the Bible or any part of the story of God that is congruent with that thinking. And so part of the theological work that I'm wanting to do for us as a community is to unhitch us from that shame wagon and to send it down the canyon and light it on fire. Okay? Does that make sense? That's like not even in the notes. It's just an image that came to my mind. Okay? Okay. Somebody said amen. Okay. So we have this image of Adam and Eve, and that's one of the images and the symbols that we live with to describe what's happening. But there's this other symbol and another story that captures the narrative of the fall and the story of sin. It's the story about when people just like you and I built a really big tower called the Tower of Babel. How many of you heard of the Tower of Babel? That's great. I'm sure it's in some movie you could watch. I don't know which one, but I'm sure it's out there somewhere. So this is the story I want to camp out on a bit this afternoon because I think that in this story, we find a much more relatable symbol for how sin works in our own lives. And here's why. I think sin at work in our lives is so much more subtle than we give it credit for. I think it's really subtle in the way in which it shows up into our lives. I don't know about you, but I'm not super tempted these days to take things that don't belong to me. I don't walk through the grocery store wondering how I could slip a Snickers bar into my pocket. Most of the sin, I think, in many of our lives are these subtle little ways of thinking and showing up in the world. And I think that there's a subtlety in the story of the Tower of Babel that I would love for us to bring out and to see it in a little bit different light to understand that God is not punishing the subtle errors of our life. God is scooping down to rescue us. It's sort of the narrative I want to live into. So look with me in your bulletin for the text that we find in Genesis chapter 11, and I'm going to read some of that out loud as well. Uh, Genesis chapter 11 Beginning in verse 1, we're going to read 1 to about 9 or so. Also, it's also in your Bible, in the book of Genesis, uh, towards the beginning, okay? 
So, verse 1 begins like this of chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. I want you to stop right there for a second. Uh, A quick little note on reading Scripture. So, on the surface, this passage would seem to lead us to believe that everyone on the entire planet spoke the same language. But here's the thing. When this was written, we actually know from archaeological and historical record that there were thousands of languages across the world already. And, um, you know, this was written in the ancient Near East, uh, probably around um, sort of Iran, Iraq region. And there were people groups living in Australia and in the Americas in multiple, multiple languages that were written. So what this means is that when we read Scripture, sometimes we have to sort of like take a step back and say, what's actually happening here? Because it's not saying something historical or scientific about the world or about the planet. It must be doing something else, and we're going to get to that in just a second. In this particular context, the whole world meant the ancient Near East. And it may have even been more localized to that. Because you've got to remember that this is probably about you know, um, at least 3,000 years ago. And so there wasn't giant, you know, cities all throughout the land. And so this could have just been a localized region where everyone in that localized region spoke the same language. And we're going to come back to that, which is why I'm spending a little time on it. So verse 2, as people moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar, which is part of uh, the Babylonian sort of region, which is also important. And these people settled there, and they said to each other, Come, let us make bricks and bake them thoroughly. And they used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. So here, again, a a brief stop. This is a statement about technology. So bricks were actually a new invention of the time. And what that meant was that as they learned how to make bricks better and better, it meant that they could build buildings higher and higher, which is how the concept of a city even emerged. And so this is a period in which the whole concept of city is emerging, and people are starting to congregate in tighter groups of people, and things begin to unfold out of that context that they hadn't unfolded out of before. Verse 4, they said this, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the earth. But the Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the people were building. And the Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and confuse their language so they they will not understand each other. And so the Lord scattered them from there all over the earth, and they stopped building the city. That is why it was called Babel, because the Lord confused the language of the whole world, and from there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. That's Genesis chapter 11, 1 to 9. So listen, there's a few things in this narrative that are going on uh, that, that, aren't, that isn't actually super clear, and I want to just dig around there. A little bit. And the reason that is, is like I said, this was written like 2,500 years ago. Uh, So imagine people from the future, like in the year 5,000, looking at the things that we're a part of trying to understand the Kardashians. Okay, so that's like how much distance and how much work that scholars have done around trying to understand the cultural moment that this text emerges from. The story that we find in Genesis is a story about a God sort of unfolding himself to humankind through time, giving humans a glimpse of what he's like. And so as you read the story of Genesis, what you're getting is a picture of God sort of unfolding what he is like to the people. It's written over the course of of long periods of time and stitched together into one book. And then that book is a story that's trying to help people understand this is what our relationship with God has been like that we know of so far. And the book of Genesis is actually divided into two main parts. 
chapters 1 through 11 are sort of about all humanity. And it's a larger picture about people prior to God's particular dealing with one particular family, which is the family of Abraham. So chapters 12 to the end is like this zoomed-in feature of the family of Abraham, and chapters 1 to 11 is more talking about humanity in general. And the reason that that's important is because the story that we're reading is on the hinge point of that transition. It's setting up the context for why God goes after this one lonely human called Abraham and begins to make a plan to reconcile the all the entire world to himself. And so in the context, humans have gathered together and they've begun to build cities. And the story about the Tower of Babel is a story about why God decided to intervene in some of the most humblest ways. And so what's happening? What's happening in the story? First, they built a tower. Why is that important? And, and why does it matter? So this tower that they built was likely uh, a tower called a ziggurat. And a ziggurat was an ancient form of a tower that sort of spiraled its way towards the heavens. And the idea of a ziggurat was not a tower that was built in order to reach God. The idea of a ziggurat was to create a sacred space where God would come down. And so on top of this ancient tower in Babylonia, um, what most towers would have had, they would have had a tiny little house where they would hope that the God would come down to dwell in that tiny house and to find favor with them and to sort of uh, bolster them as a people. Okay, are you guys with me? This is sort of like the context of this tower. They were building a sacred space, but it wasn't an effort to reach heaven. It was an effort to bring God down. So text, uh, the text says in verse 4, it says this, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So here's the context for how people thought about their relationship with God in the ancient Near East. Some of you may have been here a few weeks ago when I described that the god Marduk in the story that would have been prevalent of the time, the story that they were telling ourselves is that Marduk created us to be slaves and we will labor in the fields for all of the gods so that they can eat really well. And so when a group of people get together to build a city with the express purpose of making a name for themselves, the narrative that they're trying to live out is a narrative that says this, we must work together to get God's attention. And the harder we work, the more attention we accrue, and it might be the case that the gods will smile upon us and have favor on us. They're trying to get God's attention with building the tower. This is the first evidence of quid pro quo that you've ever heard of. It's a Latin phrase. How many have heard the phrase quid pro quo recently? Just curious, okay. If you haven't, you're living under a rock. Okay, so what quid pro quo is, it's a Latin phrase that effectively means this, I will scratch your back if you scratch my back. Quid pro quo is an exchange of something for something else. It's a favor with a favor that is expected in return. The posture of these men and women who are building this tower is a quid pro quo posture towards God that says, we will do this for you in hopes that you will notice us and take care of us. We will earn favor with you, is the story that they're living under. They were building a holy and sacred place in hopes that the gods would, favor, would have favor on them, but they're doing it in a way that misaligns to how God actually wants to have a relationship with them. The sin of Babel is that God is not a quid pro quo God. 
God does not do the, if you scratch my back, I will scratch your back kind of thing. And God scattering the people is in service of preventing them from assuming things about him that just aren't true. Does this make sense? As they're caught in a narrative about how to relate to the God, and God is saying, I'm not like that. You don't have to come with all of your gifts and your tidings. You don't have to come with your special building. That's not how I operate. So the first thing that we see emerging in the story with a close reading is that part of the reason that God scatters them is to break their false perception of what he's like. How many of you ever have had a sort of a false perception of God that has ruled over your life in a way that's been unhelpful. Anybody ever had that happen? I think all of you just raised your hand, which is quite surprising to me. Here's the thing. Friends, we often are trying to have a relationship and interact with God in a way that is not congruent with the actual character of who God is. And wouldn't it be kind of him to disrupt the way we are thinking? This is what happens in the story of the Tower of Babel. So we learn that they're building a tower. And the second thing we learn is that they're gathered rather than scattered. Again, back to verse 4. They said this, they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we'll be scattered over the face of the whole earth. So friends, these are people that are living in fear of being scattered. And yet God is still trying to help them see that the entire world is there for their provision and for their stewardship. Earlier on in the narrative of Genesis... What we find is we find a story about how God has made human beings to be just like Him, to be in His image, and then He placed power in them to go into all of the world and to be a light into all of the world bearing His image. You guys may have read that in Genesis. What's happening here in this is that they're afraid to walk into that purpose. And they're afraid to be scattered into the whole world. So when you begin to build temples on top of towers and expect that God will show up there, you do so at the detriment of living into the reality that God is everywhere. They were trying to build a tower and a temple in hopes that God would be in one place. And what does God do? He shows up and he says, actually, that's actually not the kind of God that I am. You're trying to harness my power in this one place, but I've always intended for you to be in all of the places in the world so that my glory will cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, the psalmist says. The entire earth, from God's perspective, is the temple of God. And so if a people are afraid to scatter, what they're trying to do is they're trying to make this particular place the temple of God, where God dwells and where we can experience God. Listen, I think as churches, we can kind of run amok with this, can't we? Like oftentimes we can think that the place that we experience God is like in this place at this time from 4 to 6 p.m. on Sundays. And we sort of store up all of our wanting and all of our desire for God. I don't know about you, but sometimes I've had seasons of life where I've sort of stored up all of that desire and all of that energy for God, and I've waited to allow it to spill out at church. And part of the work that God is doing in our lives is he's making a mess of that version of the story. Does this make sense? 
God has always wanted himself to be married to our bodies scattered through the earth because all of the world is God's temple. And so what's happening in the, in the story of Babel is that they're, they're sort of afraid to walk into that vocation of carrying God's presence in the world and they're trying to hoard God's presence in one place. The gift of God in scattering the people at Babel is the gift of not allowing people to capture God in one place, but to continually invite them to be what they were always meant to be, little representations of God going out into the world. That's a little different reading of the Tower of Babel, isn't it? So first, building a tower. They're sort of doing this quid pro quo thing with God. We're saying, we want to build this amazing tower. We want to earn favor with you. And God is like, actually, I'm not like that. This little project of tower building is not going to work. And the second thing is that they're afraid to scatter, which was their vocation from the very beginning. The writers of Genesis are telling a story about God's intention to scatter His presence throughout the the earth, that you and I are meant to be co-laborers and co-creators with God in the world, and oftentimes we refuse to just live into that reality. So the last thing that they did that God sort of pushes against in His gentle way is that they exerted power over other people. One of the things going on in this story is that people with power were likely exerting that power over others. And so I mentioned before that it's, it was not the case that the world at this time was speaking with one language. Um, even locally, uh, there would have been uh, localized tribes with their languages and their cultures and their stories. And so when you're telling a story in this context, and when you're eager to point out that everyone is speaking in one language, what you're saying is that there's one group of people has overtaken other groups of people and are now forcing those other groups of people to speak in their language. That was happening all of the time in the ancient world. It would be similar to the way that our ancestors, European settlers, from Europe came into this land and forced the native people to speak English and to cut their hair and to dress like us. This is a story about the exertion of power. The confusion of the languages is not a punishment by God. He's undoing what power and conflict and war were required to bring together. Old Testament scholar Richard Middleton writes this, the city with a tower that reaches to the heavens could be a city of great military strength. The desire to reach to the heavens reflects a desire for domination. So a tower in a city in the ancient Mesopotamian world is a symbol, a religious quid pro quo with the gods, the acquisition of power, and the desire to bring all things under control. That's what's happening at Babel. The Tower of Babel is a symbol infused with story and commitments and ideas and ideology and intention. And it's a story that reminds us of all of the little micro micro ways in which we sort of get our view of God wrong. We think that God is one thing. And God consistently and gently pushes back against us and says, I'm actually not like that. So go with me on this a little bit. Because I want to help provide a little definition of sin that I think will rescue us from the shame that we often attach it. Sin is what happens when we get attached to living in a narrative that does not line up with how God desires us to interact with Him, 
It's what happens when we get attached to living in narratives that do not line up with God's desire for how we think about ourselves. And sin is what happens when we get attached to symbols and stories that skew our relationship with one another. So if I'm a part of a group of people and I'm speaking a particular language and I want to conquer you, what that reveals about me is that I have a skewed understanding of what my relationship with you was meant to be. So three things. God? Yeah. Um, If I am part of a group of people, And what I do is I conquer you and I'm trying to get you to speak my language in this context, for example. What it reveals is that I'm not having a right view of what my relationship with you should be like. So the three things that are going on in the Tower of Babel is a misaligned view of relationship with God a misaligned view of what I am and supposed to be in the world, and a misaligned view of how I am to relate to other people, all of the humans. This story of Babel is like an archetypal story. Because I don't know about you, but when I am sort of amiss, when I'm not doing well, when I'm making choices that lead to destruction, at the root of those choices is often either a misaligned view with what my relationship with God is like, a misaligned view with who I'm supposed to be in the world, or a misaligned view of what my relationship to you, or you, or you is supposed to be like. Sin is when we get that stuff wrong, as God has laid out for us about how it's supposed to be. So think with me about the Tower of Babel as a symbol of all of that stuff. Oftentimes we read the Tower of Babel as God coming and punishing people because they got too strong. And that's not what the story is about. God scattering the people is an act of rescue from thinking about him in a way that's unhealthy, from living in fear against what they were always meant to be, and living with an irreconcilable tragedy of how they were viewing their relationship with other people. And so what happens if we fast forward into the New Testament, if we think about the Tower of Babel on one hand as a symbol for all of the ways in which we sort of get entangled in thinking incorrectly, The cross becomes a symbol that stares all of that stuff down. The cross is like the little bronze girl. Showing up with power in a completely different way. And so that we have a new symbol that articulates the way that we're supposed to live. We're going to talk about that in the next coming months. It's a cross-shaped way of life. So, just a couple things I want to draw out of this, and we're going to have some time to reflect and some time to ask questions. First, our relationship with God is not quid pro quo. I want you to think for a moment about the ways in which you think that God is a God that if you scratch his back in some way that he will deliver goodness to you. If I just get it right, 
some of us say. God will do this special thing for me. If I just pray enough, God will make this thing happen for me. If I just say the right words when I'm laying my hands on someone, praying for them, that God will, in fact, heal them, and that there's some sort of special incantation or some sort of special way of praying that makes it the case that God will act. Friends, that is not how God is like. God is not looking for you to get it right before He comes in at your service. We learned this at the Tower of Babel. It's one of the first stories that we learn it. And I don't know about like what your perception of God is like, but part of my work as a pastor and, and part of the thing that I'm, I'm on a journey with you is that we do need to think about ways in which our view of God is not actually shaped by who God really is. I meet people all the time that have a view of God that is like a monster. And my hope is that we can become a people that are open to seeing God for who God really is. That's what's happening at Babel. He is gently saying, I'm not like that. We should just ruin this party that you've got thrown right now because this is not going to go anywhere. This makes sense. Jesus picks this up in the Gospels. Um, You guys remember the story of the widow's might? There's this story where Jesus points to this really wealthy guy who comes and he, he puts in a bunch of money into the offering plate And then he looks at this widow who puts just two small coins. And he points this out as that she has given more because she gave with something that was going on inside of her heart. Or elsewhere, Jesus says that, you know, sometimes people come out and they are super vocal in the way they pray. And they pray these long, crazy prayers that bore everybody. But they're doing it in order to get favor some sort of quid pro quo with God, the kind of praying that God really loves is when you go inside of a closet and you recognize that you're not doing it to earn favor with anybody or with God Himself. So what God over and over and over again says is, I will gently and consistently undo all of your best efforts to relate to me in ways that are rooted in your false perception of me. I will make myself known to you, always revealing, always rescuing, always inviting you to the truth of who I am. So our second temptation is to live in a way that does not align with who God has made us to be. Friends, you were made to be like God in the world. And there are so many ways that we shrink back from becoming who God has made us to be. We shrink back from fear of failure. We shrink back for allowing our wounds to define us and and not sort of receiving the healing that God offers us. What you think about yourself is really important to God. Because he made you. The story of the, of the Tower of Babel is a counter-narrative to the way that we find that, that we live our lives. That when we exert our power over someone else or to force someone to have our own way or to manipulate a situation towards our own ends, we're always operating in a way that is counter to the posture of God. The conquering of people and forcing them to speak in one language is a story that has been repeated over and over and over again through time, but it also happens in micro levels under our own roof. You guys ever experienced a power struggle with someone you love? That's the worst, because somebody loses 
And it's almost worse to win in that moment, isn't it? So when you notice that a power struggle is erupting in your heart, something is going on where you are misaligned with your relationship with that other person. God does not work by exerting power over anybody. That's why Jesus came and took on the form of flesh and died in humility to demonstrate that there is another way to live. So when God scatters the people of Babel, He's rescuing them. And here's what I want to sort of lead us into reflection. What are some of the ways that things are not working out for you as you intended them to be? And how are some of those things God's rescuing act to you? Is it possible that some of the things that aren't going your way is actually God stepping in and saying, wait a second, I'm actually not like that. Or you're not meant for that. Or that's not how I want you to relate to other people. And as we sit with our lives, we can sort of sit with this as a as a lens through which we view the things that are happening among us. And the second thing I would ask you to consider, and something that I've been considering a little bit, is that what are some of the symbols that we've attached ourselves to that drastically inform the way we live our lives? I've found that the symbols that we attach our, ourselves to are generally tied to status and security and power. And so, what's your Tower of Babel? What is the thing that you get caught up in that is not the core of the story that God is telling? And when you confront what that thing might be, you don't have to feel ashamed of it. Does this make sense? Whatever that is for you, that's sin. Whatever your babble is. But rather than feeling shame at the discovery that you have a babble in your life, if you could read the Babel story in a way that I've tried to present it to you, which is God is rescuing you. He's rescuing you. And the fact is, is that He has already rescued you. It's already happened. Through the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, you've already been rescued from whatever the tower of Babel is in your life. Does this make sense? Okay. So two questions for reflection as we head back into a time of silence. What are some of the symbols and stories that you've attached yourself to? They may be symbols and stories that interrupt your view of God or your view of self, or your view of others. These are subtle things. And how does it show up for you? Does it show up in a search for status? Thumbs ups, likes, shares? Lots and lots of people noticing you. 
Is it more about security for you? Do I have enough in the bank? Can I retire? Or will I need to bag groceries when I'm 65? Or is it about power? Is it about getting your way? So let me just take a few moments and sit with this and reflect on it. Let me pray over all of us. And we'll create some space to dialogue a little bit and then to pray for one another. Does that sound okay? So Holy Spirit, come. Just push away all shame right now in Jesus' name. And Lord, would you just reveal to all of us the ways in which we build our towers? What is God doing in your life? That is pushing out your false perception of who God is. Is there any ways that you're living with a story that interrupts God's true intention for your life? Are there small ways, and of course there are, that you exert your power unkindly over other people? So that they will think like you, or act like you, or serve your goals and ends. And how might God step in and rescue you from that?
And so whatever is coming to your mind, I want you to know that there's a difference between sorrow and shame. Sorrow is healthy and good. Shame is not from God, ever. And whatever is coming to your mind, God has already done all of the rescuing work to make things right between you and God. And so as we head into some time of conversation and prayer, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would fill hearts with your grace, that people would know that you are kind and loving and generous. And God, whatever scattering from our babble you might perform for us even today, is an act of kindness and rescuing. In Christ's name, amen.